So please give your attention now to the reading of God's infallible word as we have it in Genesis chapter 47, beginning at verse 28, and then moving into chapter 48 through verse 22, which is the entire chapter. Please listen, I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he, Joseph, swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed or staff. Moving into chapter 48 now. After this, Joseph went, excuse me, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me... When I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see Joseph, And so Joseph brought them near to him and kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I have never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's right hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, 
By you, Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hands of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. And there ends the reading of God's infallible, inerrant word. A mature faith. You know, like everything else, these messages could have a number of different titles or Sometimes I think it's best they don't have a title at all. But I guess if, uh, you, you know, this one, a mature, do you possess a mature faith? Or mature faith is a hopeful, optimistic faith. There's several things that we could say here. But I want to start out by telling you. Something a friend of mine told me about a man he knew who grew up in Myrtle Beach. And he said that when he was a boy, this man who grew up in Myrtle Beach, one of his pastimes was building sandcastles on the beach. And he became very adept at constructing entire cities in the sand with very elaborate and ornate designs. Well, it seems that one year, for several days in a row, he was harassed by a group of bullies who were visiting the beach that week or whenever it was. They made fun of him and they would smash his sandcastles. And the man said that he decided to try an experiment in response to that problem. He began to place pieces of concrete and cinder block and rocks in the base of his castles. And so he built his cities in the sand on top of the rocks. Sort of reminds you of the parable we heard earlier today, doesn't it? And he said the result was that when the local bullies reappeared, they had no success at all in destroying his sandcastles. So you know, friends, as we look today around us at the great dangers and perils facing the church, we find plenty to be concerned about. Now, I'll be the first to agree that just about at any point in the 2,000-plus year history of the Christian church, a pastor could stand in a pulpit and make that statement. But sometimes more cogent and relevant than others, and this is now such a time. The violence and evil in the home and in society, political leaders who hate God and His law word, and within the church, false teachers and hypocrites and phonies, who talk one way and live another. And seeing all these problems, people become totally focused on the sinfulness of humanity. And as a result, they can forget that the church of God is built upon the solid rock of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I think there is, in other words, an immature faith that too many Christians live with, and that prevents many from dealing with these big problems that we all must face as Christians. In our study today, it is my hope that we will learn about what it means to have a mature, hopeful, optimistic faith. And this comes to us, as we have read and heard, in the waning moments of the life of this great man, Jacob Israel. In the book of Hebrews, the writer pays tribute to Jacob by including him in the great list of Old Testament saints, those who believed the promises of God and thereby received life eternal, kingdom life through Christ. The writer says in chapter 11, verse 21, when Jacob was dying, faith led him to bless each of Joseph's sons. He leaned on the top of his staff and worshiped God. So I want to mention these three things in particular 
And there's something at the end where I'll, I'll make a few other points, but these three main points about mature faith, what it does, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like. So to begin with, mature faith does not lose sight of God's promise or promises. So this man, Jacob, knew that the future of his family, indeed the future of God's people, was not in Egypt. It was in the land of Canaan. He didn't want to be buried in some strange grave, in some strange place. He wanted to be laid rest with his fathers in the land of promise. Notice how Jacob responded when Joseph took the oath and promised to do what he asked him, which is to take his body out of Egypt and bury him in the promised land. 47.31, swear to me, and Joseph swore to him, so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed or on his staff. So Jacob's response was not focused on Joseph's willingness to do what he asked him, which I'm sure he's glad for, though. No, his focus is on God's faithfulness to his promises. He bows his head on his bed, and he thanks God that he will return to the place God promised him. It is unfortunate that so many lack that kind of faith and reverence today. You know, the least little problem comes our way, and aren't we just ready to renounce the Lord and to give up all hope? Because when things don't go the way we think they should, well, that's just the end of it, isn't it? But Jacob was a man who had no visible reason for hope at all, did he? Here is a man whose whole life has been one of trial and difficulty, of sorrow and heartbreak. He's had to abandon the land of his father's and, and there's no food to eat, there's a famine, and now he's going to die in a foreign land. What hope does he have that even in death he will return to Canaan? Well, friends, I'll tell you, he has the promise of God Almighty, and that's a pretty good hope. Secondly, a mature faith knows how to develop hope and confidence for the future by thinking about the blessings in the past. I heard a story once about the World War II years and era in Europe when the German army was blitzkrieging in lightning-fast, violent warfare across the continent. And in a particular village that was under attack, a father was holding his young son's hand as they ran out from a building that had been hit by a bomb. In the front yard was this deep, deep hole made by a bombshell and the father, looking for shelter as quickly as he could, he jumped right into the hole, and then he held up his arms for his young son to follow him. Well, the little boy was terrified. I mean, he could hear his father calling and telling him to jump, but in the darkness and the smoke, he couldn't see him. I can't see you, the boy shouted. And the father, looking up from the hole, up into a sky that was hellfire red from the buildings burning all around, said, son... You can't see me, but I can see you. Now jump. And that little boy jumped because he knew he could trust his father. In fact, he had on many occasions relied on his father, and his father had never failed him. Based on the remembrance of those past blessings, he was now ready to jump into what looked like a bottomless pit because his father promised to catch him. Now if you notice... In chapter 48, as we read those first seven verses, Jacob is remembering out loud how God Almighty, El Shaddai, had blessed him 
with the promise of a multitude of descendants in the land as an everlasting inheritance. Now, he is sharing those things, those stories, now with his children and with his grandchildren. Now, I suppose, viewed from one angle, these are just the ramblings of an old man. I'm sure that the story that he told was not new to any of them except the grandchildren. But we shouldn't miss, actually, what he is doing here. He is passing on life to his children and his grandchildren. He's giving them a sense of history and a sense of blessing. You know, we've lost that sense of history for a number of different reasons. I mean, in in our modern time, it's the uh, politically correct woke attack on every vestige of Christian uh, culture that has existed in these United States, such as it has been, and in terms of European Christian culture generally. But on another level, I think that we have lost that sense of inheritance and history because of the way our age has developed with you know, uh, technology, we are only focused primarily on the present. You know, one of the best things, let me suggest, that you can do to pass your story on to others is to tell them about your own spiritual pilgrimage. I mean, that is one of the best things you can do, is to tell that story. What a blessing for children and grandchildren to know how you came to grace. So you share those stories. Take time to build a sense of history into those you love. The words that Jacob shared with his children were the words of promise. Those words that had sustained him through all of the ups and downs of his life and his journey. It was the sure word of God, the living God, and he knew he could trust it. Well, the next thing that we see here is Joseph coming to Jacob's deathbed with his two sons, That was a custom of that time. All the male heirs were expected to go and receive a final blessing from the head of the family. And there we see also Jacob declaring his intention to adopt Joseph's two sons as his own. That's the meaning of that wording there, now mine. Now that too was not uncommon in those ancient times. And it seems that Jacob's reasoning for doing that has something to do with these two boys being the grandchildren of his beloved wife, Rachel. Joseph's mother. Jacob is near his own death, and he is recalling, I suspect, with great emotion, the death of his dear wife, Rachel. Maybe when he saw Joseph, it reminded him of her. But I think for us, however sentimental that may be, the main thing the Lord wants us to understand from these first seven verses is that in him, we too can look to the future with hope and assurance. And we can do that because God has been faithful in the past. And he promises to be faithful to his church in the future as well. That was Jacob's hope. And that should be our hope too. So, thus far, we see that a mature faith, a mature, optimistic, hopeful faith, does not lose sight of the promises of God, and that it is a hope for the future that's grounded on our experience of blessing from the Lord in the past. But now thirdly, And in some ways, this third point is similar to what we talked about last week about God's timetable. The third point, but it's it's different in some ways, too. A mature faith recognizes that God's ways are not our ways. So in these verses, we see Jacob praising God for his faithfulness. And he confesses that he hadn't dared hope to see Joseph alive before his death. But now he's not only seeing Joseph, he's seeing Joseph's sons. 
And Joseph fully expects his father to bless those boys, as was the custom. And you notice the reverence and the respect that Joseph paid his father. The Bible says he bowed down to the ground to him. Now, that is an especially moving scene because Joseph, let's not forget, is the number two man in the most powerful nation empire in the world at the time. He was much more accustomed to being bowed to as opposed to bowing. And yet, because of his love for Yahweh and his God, the God of his father, and his love for his father, he bows himself right down to the ground. I think it's interesting to ponder whether he remembered the dream he had as a boy, where he dreamed about the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him. This part of the dream, what's happening here about his family bowing down to him, his father and his mother, it didn't seem to quite turn out that way, at least not in this particular corner of that incident. Now, in the blessing of the children, this was the custom of the older son to be blessed first. And symbolically, the father would use his right hand to bless the older and his left hand to bless the younger. And you'll find that kind of symbology and, and symbolism all through the Bible. The right hand or the right side, that's the position of power and authority. And so Joseph positions his sons in a way such that Manasseh is in front of Jacob's right hand and Ephraim is in front of the left. I mean, the old man, we, we read there, he can't see very well. But when Jacob goes to bless the boys, uh, incredibly, he crosses his hands like that so that the right hand blesses the younger son, Ephraim, and the left hand blesses the older son, Manasseh. Now, we have certainly run into this sort of thing before in this book of Genesis, haven't we? This out-of-the-ordinary preference of the younger over the older, that goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, doesn't it? And, of course, to Jacob himself and the situation with his older brother Esau. But there is a difference here between what happens with Jacob and Esau and what happens with Ephraim and Manasseh. Because in the former case, it was an, a blind Isaac who was tricked into giving the younger boy Jacob the birthright. But here, a blind Jacob intentionally reverses the order of the blessing. And we aren't long in seeing how Joseph reacted. He wasn't happy about it, was he? He probably thought, well, now the old man's so blind, he's gone and moved his hands around. But no, this was Jacob's decision in line with the will of God. Joseph like so many of us, perhaps, expected God to act in a certain way. But now, he finds that he chose to work in and out of the ordinary way. And this was in line with what God had declared over a hundred years earlier, back in Genesis 25, to Rebekah, he said, Two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. But look again, at Jacob's blessing at verses 15 to 16 of chapter 48. And he blessed Joseph. And he said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, may he bless the lads, let my name be named upon, upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, there's several things here that I want to mention about this in, in closing, about what we just read. First, here is a good example of how the triune nature of God is portrayed or represented in the Older Testament. Our God is a trinity. 
And although that belief is spelled out clearly in the New Testament, it's foreshadowed, it's you know, symbolically referenced here in the Older Testament, and this is one of those foreshadowings, I believe. This threefold invocation of God's name as the God of His fathers, God His shepherd, or the God who fed me, and God the angel. That looks forward to the threefold blessing of God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But then secondly, think about why Jacob talks of God in that way. As the God of his fathers, Jacob took comfort and hope in his own days of trial and suffering. Hope that their God, the God of their, his fathers, is his God too, just as the Lord had been faithful to them, so too he would be faithful to Jacob. And as I just mentioned, the words there translated in some translations, the God who fed me, it literally means that God was his shepherd the one who provided for him and watched over him throughout his life. And then he also calls him his angel who delivered him. So there are many times that the Lord delivered Jacob during very difficult days. Now, those descriptions of God show us the deep, mature faith that Jacob has. It is a faith that has matured, hasn't it, throughout the years. A faith that, that had learned to trust the Lord in the difficult and trying times of life. And when he had this occasion to pronounce this blessing, he could remember those trying times. And when we read these remarkable words of Jacob to his son, in 48, verse 22, I'm reading it from the Christian Standard Bible this time, he says, over and above what I'm giving your brothers. You may have wondered about this when we read it a while ago. Why is he, what's he doing here with this? Over and above what I'm giving you, your brothers, he says to Joseph, I'm giving you one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Now, this is, again, an evidence of a hopeful, mature faith and a, an optimistic faith. This man is dying, but with his dying breath, he confesses his faith and hope in the promise of God the promise to bring his family back to the land of Canaan. And to make sure Joseph knows he truly believes that promise, he goes ahead and gives him a double portion of the property as his inheritance. A mature faith equals hope and trust in God and optimistic looking forward to the future. About 350 years ago, there was a shipload of travelers who had left England, on the, and they, went, they arrived in, in the, these boats on the northeast coast of what would become these United States. In their first year in the new land, they established a site for the town, and they began to build it. In their second year they proceeded to elect town officials and a mayor for the town. In the third year, the town officials made plans to build a road. Remember, they have come in by boat. They've landed on the coast. Probably we're talking about Massachusetts here. And so there are no roads. They've just simply cleared off a place to live. They've established a, a somewhat flourishing town or village and now they, the town council that they've elected wants to build a road that's going to extend five miles westward out into the wilderness surrounding them. But in the fourth year, the people of that town tried to throw out the mayor and the town council, the city officials. They did that because they had come to believe 
It would be a waste of public money to build a road five miles westward out into the wilderness. I mean, who needs to go out there anyway, was their attitude. My friends, there is a lesson in that story from the early days of these United States. A lesson that goes right along with what the Bible is teaching us about the issue of mature, hopeful, optimistic faith. Because here, here were a people who had the vision and the faith to get in a boat and, and travel 3,000 miles across an ocean and overcome the greatest hardships to get here. But in just a few years, they weren't even able to see five miles outside of town. They had lost their pioneering faith and their pioneering vision. Friends, if we have a clear vision of who the God is that we claim to believe in, and if we possess a mature faith in His promises, then no ocean of difficulty is too great for us to get across. But if we don't have that faith and that vision... We will rarely move outside of our comfort zones and our boundaries or limits to life, and we'll end up being tyrannized by those who want to control every aspect of life. It's been that way from the beginning. How do we develop a mature faith? First, we trust the promises of God. Secondly, we establish our hope for the future in the blessings that God has shown us in the past. And then thirdly, we remember that God is sovereign and that His ways are not always our ways. And finally, always we remember that the blessings of the Lord through Christ Jesus are the only truly important blessings. Let us pray.